everybody's talking about shiny gadgets and statistics, yet what is your, what is your understanding of the actual game? Well, my friend, I can tell you this is definitely a first. I think six, maybe seven years into the podcast now, I have yet to record any portion of the show in a spare bedroom while on vacation. But as the saying goes, the show must go on. Last week was absolutely insane. I had like four new people start up. I had all kinds of stuff going on with program design for online clients. Just all the things happened last week. And I thought, man, Friday night, I'll have some time. I'm going to carve it out and I'm going to get the show intro and outro recorded. But we decided, hey, why are we going to mess with this crazy spring break traffic? Let's just leave at 6 p.m. in the evening, drive through the night and avoid it all. So here we are. The show must go on. Had to get this done. So, man, I have an awesome episode for you here today. Anthony Donskov is the founder and head performance coach at Donskov Strength and Conditioning. He's also the author of the amazing book, Physical Preparation for Hockey, Biological Principles and Practical Solutions. But I think the most interesting thing about Anthony to me is the fact that he just went back and got his PhD. And like me, he is in the private sector and he is trying to figure out ways to merge technology and sports science into the private sector to really make some cool things happen. So if you're a regular to the show, welcome back. As always, love and appreciate you. And if you're new here, welcome. I'm Mike Robertson, and this is the Physical Preparation Podcast. In this show, we take deep dives into the art and science of coaching, cueing, program design, business, and personal development. Basically, anything to help you become a better trainer, coach, or rehab professional. Now, all kinds of cool stuff in this episode. We start by talking about why Anthony went back to get his PhD He's not a young buck. He's 40. He's like me. Why would somebody go back and do that? He answers that. Second, we talk about how to evaluate technology and figure out if it really fits your needs. There's all kinds of cool tech and cool gadgets out there, but how do you figure out if something's really going to move the needle for you or your facility? Number three, we talk about how much data is enough. I mean, this is such a powerful question, something we need to answer because we have almost limitless exposure to data now, but how do we know how much is enough? We talk about the power of longitudinal data, and man, Anthony's got this awesome story about Dan Pfaff. I'm not gonna spoil it for you here, but needless to say, this guy has been tracking data for decades and goes to show the best are keeping track of data long-term. We talk about Anthony's ideas and his ways to better solve problems. As trainers, coaches, rehab professionals, we're dealing with problems every single day. So what are some strategies? What are some techniques that we can use to come up with better solutions to the problems we see on the gym floor? So man, as I told you up front, this is an awesome episode, ton of fun. So we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to jump into this awesome new episode with my guy, Anthony Donskoff. Today's episode of the Physical Preparation Podcast is brought to you by Exerfly. If you're unfamiliar with flywheel training, it's a method of strength training where your athletes generate resistance by using the inertia of a flywheel instead of traditional gravity-based resistance training. By accelerating and then decelerating a disc, your athletes generate resistance at all phases of the movement. 
This allows for high force training as well as eccentric overloading without the need for crazy heavy weights. I first got interested in flywheel training because I wanted my athletes to be better prepared for sport. Standard free weight training is great for the early preparatory phases, but I wanted something that could improve the rate of force development in both the concentric and eccentric phases of the lift. Most importantly, I wanted to make sure my athletes were prepared for those eccentric forces that they'll encounter in sports. And with their motorized technology, the Exerfly allows you to increase the eccentric phase of the lift from anywhere from 1 up to 80%. The biggest objection I had early on was learning a new piece of tech or equipment. After all, sometimes these things sound great, but really aren't all that functional, or they take forever to figure out. But luckily, if you take the time to watch a few short videos and experiment a little bit, you'll be using the Exerfly like a pro in no time. Setup is quick and easy, and my athletes are absolutely loving it. Last but not least, there are tons of different exercises and variations you can use as well. Whether we're talking squats, hinges, presses, split squats, if you can think of it, chances are you can figure out a way to do it with the Exerfly. The really cool thing is Exerfly is used by numerous teams in the NFL, NBA, over 50% of the English Premier League, and numerous Olympic developmental programs as well. Now as a small business owner, I normally think, hey, this is way outside of my budget, I can't afford it, because we all know in a small business, every penny counts. But Exerfly has you covered there as well. They offer 36 month interest-free financing, so you can get started ASAP with your training and pay as you go. And when you factor in a 30 day money back guarantee, two year warranty and free shipping, I really believe this is a solid investment. Look, the bottom line is this, if I don't really love something, I'm not going to promote it on my show. I love my Exerfly, the results I'm getting with it, and I think you will as well. To learn more, head over to exerfly.com so you can start building some savage athletic beasts in your gym. Again, that's exerfly.com. Anthony, man, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. Really, really excited to have you back on. Could you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, first off, let me start by thanking you. We spoke off the air um, of all the tireless work that you've done uh, uh, for, for, our, for our craft, uh, specifically with the podcast, all the content that you put out. You continue to inspire both older and younger coaches alike. And I think uh, what you're doing specifically with the podcast and scaling a message is super, super commendable. So I'm honored to be here. Uh, I think it's round two for me. Yeah. Um, so thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Um, I'll start, I'll try to do a footnote version. I'll keep it short and sweet like my hairline. In, uh, uh, <laughs> so I've been involved in physical preparation. You and I, Mike, are almost the same age, believe it or not. So I'm going on almost 20 years in this field. Um, I grew up in Canada, so I'm a dual citizen. We moved to the United States uh, in 1990. I was 12 years old. At that time, I was in love with the game of hockey. Uh, everything for me was hockey, hockey, hockey. Moved back because there was no opportunities at the time to Canada and lived with a housing family to pursue a scholarship. My undergrad at Miami of Ohio, believe it or not, was in business administration. So nothing to do with strength and conditioning. Looking back at it now, I'm glad I did that. Uh, everything that we do as a private facility really revolves around you know, business. So I think a, a good ground, a framework for that, looking back at it now, was, was good for me. During that time, I had a kind of an ignition moment. Number one, I love training. I think most of us all do when they get into this field, right? Uh, and I had a strength coach at the time, Dan Darrymple. Now, Dan was uh, a strength coach for many, many years in the NFL with the, uh, the Saints and now recently got hired, I believe, as the Broncos' new head coach. 
uh, and he inspired me, uh, made me want to, uh, you know, love the weight room and, and, and the coaching. He was a motivational kind of guy. Um, so I did, at the time, even though I was a, a business minor, I knew I wanted to try to pursue something in exercise science. Had the opportunity to play a couple of years uh, minor professional hockey, the equivalent of double A baseball after my hockey career in college. Uh, after that, I think a lot of athletes fall into this. They don't know what they want to do, right? Sure. You have a regimented schedule. Everything's been told to you in terms and measures of where to be and, and not where to be. I really didn't know I was lost at the time. and I was uh, very, very grateful because I have two uh, supporting parents. I could never have done it without them. I started a gym in the backseat of my car. Two clients at the time, Mike, one <laughs> at 5 in the morning, one at 8 at night. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Driving back and forth. Yeah. And uh, it just started growing. Um, and, uh, at the time I thought, well, I need to get certified. I need to get my education. And I've always been driven by education. I know we'll probably talk about that. For me, I think it's probably a case of feeling like I'm intellectually inferior. I always have to prove to myself that I have to learn something. Mm-hmm. Um, so long story short, I went back and got my master's degree, uh, while running a business and moved into a small, about a 600 square foot facility at the time, uh, pursued my master's degree. At the time, it was not a thesis-based master's degree. I didn't have the option to do that because I was running a business. Um, fast forward, uh, moved into a, about a 3,200-square-foot footprint. We're still there right now, Donskoff Strength and Conditioning. Since 2005, we've been in business. Um, recently went back as a 40-year-old PhD student, so I took almost <laughs> 18 years off. You talk about humbling. Ooh, yeah. Um, and uh, here I am. I, I, I just graduated uh, from University of Western Ontario in, in London, Ontario, Canada, um, uh, with a, a, a PhD, which I'm super, super proud of, and a, and a small business owner. And uh, do everything from cleaning toilets to being a strength and conditioning coach <laughs> to, uh, to consulting with some awesome people in the industry. Yeah. Wow, man. Does that mean I have to call you Dr. Donskoff for the rest no, of the show? No, you know, you know I, I was joking about what's the movie that uh, the guys go all the way to Vegas and they check in and the guy's like, no, no, no. He, he doesn't save lives. He's a dentist. Or he, <laughs> the hangover. I, yeah. Although I can't, I can't even pull teeth. I can't, I'm not yeah. a doctor. I can't save lives. Just, just <laughs> Anthony Donskoff with a guy that likes to learn. And, and uh, it was, it is, I will say this though. The experience was, was uh, a really unique one. And it, it Huh. The, uh, it's, it was a humbling one. Let me put it that way. Very yeah. humbling. What, what was the impetus for that? Like what, what made you want to go back and, and really dive in and, and start this at 40 years old, like you said? Uh, fancy word, epistemological humility. I, I really feel that way. Like I, I, I interviewed in, our, in my podcast, I interviewed Franco and Pelizzari a couple weeks ago. Mm. And this is a guy that's like top of the food chain in, yes. in clinometrics, statistics, and he kept talking about this idea of like just humility, and I I don't feel like I, I don't feel like I'm. He didn't say it in these words, but I, you know I feel like I I have so much to learn. Yes. And here's a guy from my lens that's at the top of the food chain. I've always had this passion for learning. I call it autodidact. You know, a self-taught individual. Certainly, there's some some of the smartest guys and girls in our field don't have PhDs. That's not what that means. But for right. me, it was one of those deals where I thought. I had to prove this to myself, uh, specifically in the areas of research. At the time, my master's degree wasn't a thesis-based master's, so I wanted to, to get a better handle of, of um, really designing uh, research, uh, teaming up with statisticians, uh, learning baseline statistics. Certainly don't consider myself a, a professional by any means, but 
I'm an eager learner. So it was one of those deals where I just felt like I had something to prove. I remember a podcast with Matt Jordan a long time ago, uh, and he was talking to an individual and he was questioning whether he wanted to get his PhD or not. And he said, I'm 40. He said, well, in four years, you're going to be 44. Yeah. You could be 44 with a PhD or, or not. And it's completely <laughs> right. up to you. So a, a lot of reasons, but I think one of them was just trying to, to challenge myself. Uh, last thing I'll say uh, that, that I truly believe, I, I heard um, several motivational speakers, but what was the, the individual that's, uh, that got the big following? Tony Robbins. Oh, yeah. They asked him what the definition of success was for him, and he used one word. It was traction. Traction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I've got to feel like I'm doing something. Um, so for me, uh, traction was a big deal, and then just challenging myself uh, and being a lifelong learner. Yeah, I love it, man. Okay, so we're going to circle back to that because I've got more questions about that. Yeah. But I want to start by talking about assessments because yep. this is something that I think <laughs> you and I are both very interested in. I know I'm always tweaking mine. You're always working on yours and trying to tighten the screw, so to speak. So let's start really base level. I just want to hear about what your assessment process looks like these days. Yeah. You know what? I think the more I've been in this business, the the more I've scaled down my assessments, uh, Mm. my batteries. Um, So a couple things uh, in terms of metrics, and I know we'll talk about this. Um, Input, output, outcome. Hardest mm-hmm. things to measure outcome variables. You know, mm-hmm. our, our friend Fergus Connolly always says, you start from the scoreboard and work backwards. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm here to tell you that the, the closest things to the shot clock in basketball, the closest thing to the scoreboard in hockey are the hardest things to measure. Yes. So typically, what we as strength coaches measure, what I call low-hanging fruit, input and output. And there's nothing wrong with that, but we have to be realists when we, when, when we find out what it is we're measuring. So for me, the, what, what has changed with us is, is a technology. We have force plates now, and it's, it's changed a couple of the tests that we use for output measures. Okay. So I'll start by, the, by, by our, our just essential movement assessment, right? Those are also output, just movement output. Right. Um, we we want to get a, an idea, and this has not changed in our assessment. We just do a table test, an adduction drop test. It's a standard PRI test just to get an idea where the pelvis is. Yep. You could argue that, you know, you could watch an athlete walk up and down the turf or take a static picture of an assessment and, and, and figure out the same. Some of the best coaches that I know, Dan Pfaff being one of them, can, can you know, pick the pepper of the fly, you know what, just <laughs> by watching someone walk in a room. Yep. But we do that test nonetheless to get an idea of where the pelvis is. From there, typical FMS, you know, just watching unloaded patterns, see if there's any aberrations, any, any sway where we're at. And then Y balance, lower body Y balance. Mm-hmm. Want to get an idea of where and how the femur moves in the acetabulum. Now, a cool thing, like, you know, for us, if, if we're having an athlete that comes back, right, we have those measures over time and we can see over time an N equals one. So are those measures changing, specifically the Y balance? Is there a greater than 10 to 15% difference when it was tested last, right? Yep. If it's a new client, we don't have that information. We don't have that longitudinal data to collect. Yep. So that output variable is movement, okay? Um, another output variable that we use is performance-based, right? This is where we talk about plates, and, and I know you and I will talk about plates, and I don't claim to be a whiz with this stuff. The first call that I made when I, when I procured plates was Eric Renahan. Eric's mm. a genius with the plates, and, and he at the time re- recommended that I bucket some things into performance, health, and strategy. Okay. And, but yeah, don't don't overcomplicate this because – well, you know, look, at we have 59 metrics at Hawk and Dynamics. Yeah, like, I, I could give you the rest <laughs> of the afternoon and you could spend it on one jump. Yeah. Like, you, how are you going to drive? You, you could spend all day. Yeah. So 
so I, I talked to Eric about some some ideas and <clears throat> and and um, so for our, for our forest plates we do a hands on hips so arms akimbo yep. counter movement jump and we'll look at a couple variables that we'll track over time um, and I am going to change by the way just because this is how I learn um, and we'll talk about it. one of the variables that we've tracked this past year <clears throat> more than likely we will change in the future because. Uh, of some information and, and research that came out from Matt Jordan that's changed the way I thought, right? Yeah. And then we do isometric mid-thigh pulls. So <clears throat> here's a pretty cool thing, and I, I think you you and I are probably in agreement here. Maybe we, we differ with the test, but the question I always ask myself uh, as I've aged with, with, with this kind of stuff is how much information can I give really good narrative to the athlete or the coach with minimal wear and tear on the athlete mm-hmm. with – the the least amount of skill acquisition like a skill meaning like a back squat a yeah. front squat right and then last but not least like can i use that quote unquote test during the course of the season and make it a part of the actual program yeah right yeah so for that reason we, we chose the isometric mid-thigh pull the measures that we look at this came from a book and i'm sure you've probably read it before dan cleather force Right. Mm-hmm. In, it's, a, it's a brilliant book, by the way. It'll take you a weekend to read. Not if I recommend it to all coaches. I think he's writing another one coming up on biomechanics and running, but I just love the way it was written. And then he talked about this idea of impulse. He said, think of impulse as total force. So there's three ways really that we can look at that as peak force, rate of force development, and average force. Yep. So those are metrics that we pull from the isometric mid-thigh pull. We get a peak force measure. We get a rate of force development zero to 250 milliseconds and we get a time to to peak for us yeah right so how long um and and then we we've collected that now for a year and a half so i i it's, it's always back 10 years ago i'd say what's good and i'd say ah you know i'd rip a number off out of thin air but but right. but you have to be able to collect that information for a little bit for your unique sample or you can talk to really smart people that hey you know you're you, you've trained basketball players what what do you see with your data yeah but eventually you got to you got to catalog that information and be able to say what's good the only way you do that is it collect it for long periods of time and, and and find a way to communicate that with the end user so we've done that and those are the biggest changes we still do our 10 meter sprints um and um our upper body assessments for our teams uh, uh, we also do upper body power we do the bench press watts per pound with the linear position transducers okay so we yeah. put half it's a national hockey league combine test we like to do it so we can measure our results two combine results and give them kind of an apples to apples comparison not a perfect metric it's half of your body weight on a bench and you bench press it three times as fast as you can we get a number we track that number over time throughout the course of the hockey season oh nice does that make sense no that's perfect that's perfect Um, the other ones i'd say for our pro players another output variable but you know really how they respond to stress we would track with our first beat metrics our trimp and trimp per minute scores um so those are things that, you know, the, the force plates are the ones that have, have kind of changed the battery of tests because of that technology. Yep. Okay. So a couple of things here. Number one, yep. for people that are unfamiliar and myself, because it's been a while, what is a trimp score or what's a trimp measure? Yeah, training impulse, it, it, it's, a, you know, it's a black box algorithm by these companies, but essentially it's the time that you train um, multiplied by the intensity. So depending on what intensity your heart rate is, yep. they'll give you a score like 70 to 80%, 80 to 90%. Gotcha. It's a higher score. And it's a black box algorithm that spits out a quote unquote training impulse score. Gotcha. Does that make sense? No, that's perfect. 
That's and perfect. and the way I the way I re, the way I communicate this to our athletes, if this makes any sense, okay, this is another part that I find really interesting about communicating in, in metrics per se is. You know, if I told an athlete what a trim score is, they look at me and say, what the hell's a trim score? <laughs> right. Or the way I communicate it is say, hey, you know, you've got a car, you're a car. And, 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 you know, if I drive from Columbus to Cleveland, how much gas did I use? That's right. a, that's your trim. Now, every car is going to be different. There might be another car that has that uses a different. That's your unique score. And then trim per minute is what, what's your what's your miles per gallon? Yeah. So that's your score. So that's how I communicate that with our guys. They seem to grasp that well. I try to simplify it because I think it can be over, overly difficult. And the truth be told, that's information that, that, um, that we collect over time and it allows us to better improve our micro cycles and how we plan throughout the course of the summer. Sure. Um, does it make massive changes day over day during the course of the offseason? Truth be told, not much. Um, but it does affect the way we plan our, our micro cycles through the summer. Yeah, I love it, man. And I think we are definitely in agreement in the sense that, <laughs> I mean, like that's one of the biggest reasons I personally invested in force plates yep. was because the technical issues associated with testing, right? Uh, yep. You know, if you're going to do a vertical jump, well, you could have a jump mat and we know better than nothing, but the numbers can be dicey and they can be, sure. uh, you know, less than than accurate you could have a vertex you could also take somebody in the gym and squat or bench press or deadlift them but there's technical elements there so that's what i loved about these kinds of output scores like you just kind of alluded to right if i'm doing a counter movement jump everybody's jumped yep so very easy to reproduce even if somebody hasn't done an isometric mid-thigh pull before pretty easy to set them up (laughs) <laughs> all yep. things being considered, but there's no technical element there. I don't have to worry about somebody getting in a bad position and injuring their back when they're squatting or deadlifting. So that was a huge selling point for me. I, I would echo that too. And by the way, everyone's got, obviously, you know, to the people that, that don't have the plates and, and you're using mats, that's fine. Just recognize that there's going to be a lot of variability in your scores because you're calculating jump height. Everyone tries to, well, you're going to calculate jump height from velocity to takeoff. Using yes. a just jump mat is ground, is, is, is your, your, the airtime. So the yes. assumption with that is you're landing and taking off the same hip height. That doesn't yeah. happen. Right. We've seen that, right? right? So it overinflates the number. As long as you know that going in and, and, and you know that it's not is going to be as reliable of a, of, of, a, of, a, of a technology, you know, obviously, if that's all you have, then, then measure it. But yep. just realize there's there's limitations to all measurements. Um, yes. And and, uh, and and obviously, if one in doubt, if you're able to use a gold standard piece, do so. <laughs> right. Right. So so let's dive into that because you know you and I you've had your facility since '05. We've had ours since '08. We didn't start off with force plates. You know we started with a Vertec. We started with a jump mat. We started with a, a gym aware. And so we've progressively tried to add pieces as we go and try and refine what we're doing. So I would love to hear your thought process because you've got some tech in your gym. I mean, what's your thought process? What's your criteria for determining if a piece of tech is worth investing in or not? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think, oh, it's, 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 I think, um, for a private facility might be different than in a professional facility, right? Where, but, but I think at the end of the day, it's driven by problems. What problem do you want to solve? Right? Like yep. what, what's the problem that you're trying to solve? Okay. Do I have the, do I have the, the ability 
to measure it accurately. Is it, is, is it, you know, is it, is it accurate, right? Is it valid? Is it reliable? Um, and if, if I'm able to, if I'm able to, uh, to check those boxes and, and afford the piece, then, then by all means, I, I want to procure it and, and, and be able to measure, right? I'll give you a perfect example. Our uh, skin decks, our body fat measures are completely variable. Like, yeah, mm. we have the, it's not as reliable as it should be. It's a skin dex piece. It's not DEXA scan. It's not under, underwater. But those are $100,000 pieces of machi- machinery that we just can't afford in a small gym. For sure. Now, how do we go around that? Well, we try to do our best to standardize the operating procedure, right? So the same coach, the same pinchers, that hopefully the same time, right? Yeah. And, and you say the same time, you find that that, that has an effect, right? Yeah. What, happens when the, what happens when your hockey players come back from a Christmas vacation? <laughs> you know, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So, so you're, not, you're never going to have your cake and eat it too. But for me is, okay, what do, what's the problem? Okay, is, can we solve it with a really good, valid, and reliable piece of technology? Can we afford the piece of technology? And then how can we, how can we allow it to be more efficient for us, not add more work for us, mm-hmm. more efficient for us? Yep. Um, because you and I, we're very like, look, it, I'm looking at both lenses here, right? And, I, and I'm not, I can't speak on anyone's behalf, but my own bias, right? Yeah. Like you and I, not only do we get the data, but I, I, I can speak for myself. We don't have an athlete management system where we can upload that stuff and create files. Right. We are our AMS. I know. Yeah. So, so, so that information, if, if, you don't, if you're not efficient with being able to not only get that information, be able to, 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 um, to process and analyze it, clean it, and then communicate it in a timely fashion, oh my gosh, you're actually not adding to the efficiency and it's going to actually make you do a lot more work than needed at times. Yep. Oh my gosh. So, yeah. The the other thing I'll say in tools and technology, I, I have this in front of me because it's a blog I wrote just recently and it's just my memory is kind of like my hairline with this stuff, but I call it the three P's, the problem, process, and presentation. And I'll just read a couple of these verbatim. Is the problem measurable? If so, what's the budget? Is the problem defined by key decision makers? Well, for you and I, that we are the decision makers. Right. But if you're in the professional setting, it might be someone totally different. Yes. Is there a current problem to solve? This is one that Fergus told me, Fergus Connolly. How does fixing this uh, identified problem affect the scoreboard? Remember we talked about outcome yeah. variables? Yeah. Well, we got low-hanging fruit, low-hanging fruits, vertical jumps, and bench press. Yeah. That's important, though. Yeah. But it's hard. Yes. Process. Can this technology create process efficiency? Can I make targeted interventions in the process? How long will it take to make targeted interventions? And then last but not least, and this perhaps to me, from my experience, may be the most important. Who will communicate the results? How will the results be communicated? Is addressing the intervention affecting the scoreboard? And for me, in my small business, in our small business, communicating the results to the the professional athlete, to the coach, may be actually more important than the measure itself. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) If that makes any sense. Yes. Yeah. You know, um, so try to kind of uh, come up with, with, with stories to, to, to elaborate like the trimp story or the, you know, the narrative to give to, to athletes regarding these measures. But the reality is, you know, what's the problem at hand? Can I solve it with a, a, a piece of technology that's very valid and reliable? And then can it improve my process efficiency? And can I streamline that information to create uh, an efficiency in my system? Yeah, man, so well said. 
it, it reminds me, though, of, you know, me getting started in all this. And I think one thing I want you to understand, regardless of if you're trying to learn a new skill in our industry, if you're trying to add a piece of technology, there is this awkward phase, right? You start to take in this new information. So for me, I basically took all this time. I got set up with the testing and the protocols and I, you know, planned everything out. And I start taking through the assess, taking athletes through the assessment. And then I realize, oh crap, uh, that's probably the easy part. Because now I have to go in on the back end and that hour I just spent assessing somebody is now another hour of interpretation. So be okay with the fact that there's gonna it's going to add steps, it's going to add time, and that's where, as you alluded to, that process efficiency becomes important. I'm not saying it's not valuable, right? Just know and understand it's going to become part of your process and you should make it a, a goal to try and streamline it as much as possible going forward. One thing that really helped me, and I don't want to get off on a tangent here, so you, you reeled me in. I <laughs> a big no. You're but, good. Um, the communication part of the data up till a few years ago. So three, so 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 two big studs that really really helped clear a lot of things up. Good friend of mine, Adam Virgil. He's a genius. Mm, yes, uh, he, he's put together yeah. several dashboards. He's got a site, AdamVirgil.com. You know, um, and then Dave McDowell, and um, those two individuals. Uh, I actually built dashboards from scratch based on their tutorials. Uh, one really is for coaches. So it's a top five, bottom five with all the metrics they can pull up and position averages. They can pull up throughout the course of the year. All that information is shared on Dropbox if they're interested. And I'll be right. quite frank with you, many aren't. And that's yeah. okay. Yeah. Okay. Then we've got a, a player card, a player report profile where they see where they're at based on their unique sample size, based on a radar chart. And there's trend lines. Okay. Right. So these metrics are communicated them three to five times during the season. Okay. Every time we collect at the end of a micro cycle. And then for us, lastly, this was something really put in my brain by Dan Pfaff and Dan, like, I, I went through the Altus mentorship a while ago and uh, I just remember Dan pulling these numbers from like 1975 <laughs> times and the, like he had everything tracked and traced. For, he could tell you what was good down to the millisecond. I'm thinking, wow, We've trained our hockey populations for like almost 20 years. I don't have data like this. Have I not done a good job of, of, of collecting longitudinal data and then answering that question, what's good? So with our forest plate stuff and all of our 10-yard meter, we have a performance of excellence with our AAA teams, the under-15 team to the under-18 team. And the last quote-unquote dashboard that I keep is selfish. We, we, we do um, box and whisker plots where we have five essential five numbers. Like there's a maximum, excuse me, there's a minimum, there's a first quartile, there's a median, a mean, and a maximum, right? Okay. So so those are, that's a box and whisker plot. And, and essentially for those, we track that. Every year that new team comes, we'll add that data and add that data and add that data. So when if you ask me, Anth, what's the average vertical jump height for a U18 team, right? I can give you that number. Anth, yeah. what's the average isometric mid-thigh pull for a, a under-16 team? Mm. The more I'm able to add to that, I'm able to better have a better narrative. And, and then, you know, it's easy to say, well, you're not strong enough, really, but well, compared to who? Right. You know? And so, so these are things that... Twenty years into this, I'm 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 humbled to say I need to be better at, yes. and I've I've done that, and that communication part's improved, and it's helped me communicate those numbers in a better way. And and a shout out to Hawkins Dynamics, I, I had calls with with several of their um, 
uh, reps specifically all over and we streamlined the system so it was plug and play we could export the excel spreadsheets right into our our our, our dashboards and it oh, would nice. be a plug and play ordeal so communication parts doesn't have to be overly complicated i'm really poor with google sheets and excel but you know what those two gentlemen made 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 uh made easy work of of uh of putting a tutorial together and, and creating a really good product i love it i love it okay so this past november my guy joel jameson put on one of his like bioforce conditioning courses at the ufc performance institute in las vegas so it was awesome and one of the speakers was duncan french and duncan i don't know he's He's a big wig over there now. I don't know his official title, <laughs> uh, but it's funny because I remember him. He was at Ball State at the same time I was. And so the day he comes in to talk, he wears this T-shirt that says data over feelings or it's like data or is like greater than, you know, one of these funny little kitschy shirts that only Duncan could wear. Yep. But I thought it was funny. And I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Again, you've taken yep. the time to really dive into data. You've gone back. You've gotten your Ph.D., what role should data be playing in our decision-making process? And maybe yeah. along those same lines, on the flip side, what does that have to do with our subjective feelings? Like, yeah. what role do they play? Yeah, it's, a, it's a, such a great question. It's a deep question. And, and I feel like, I don't feel like I'm the most qualified to answer that, but I'll take a crack at it. Um, I think two things are really critically important when I talk about this. Number one, the message that I'm about to say to measurement's important so yes. no, no one's when i when i when i say this no one's when i my my narrative is don't measure it's important create get objective information right yep um here's what i would say so the best so first of all a measure is anything that can be quantified right a metric is putting some sort of a hierarchy is that good is that bad where do you fall in your so so now you're creating a metric right yep when a metric becomes a target, at many times it, it can lead to unintended consequences. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, if you study all summer the wrong, uh, if you study all summer uh, Spanish and then find out, you know, you have a geometry lesson at training camp, <laughs> you know, you're running 300 yard shuttles, you're studying for the wrong test, right? So it's important that you pick the right metric. So let me rewind back and say, why do we even measure things? So I, I think for me, there's a couple reasons, right? Number one, we want to get closer to the quote unquote truth, right? Truth is in air quotes. There's no certain yeah. truth, but we want to get closer to that truth. Number two, which I think is critically important that we as strength coaches do, is we try to co simplify complex systems, okay? That's what we do when we collect metrics. We have one part of a massive puzzle. The reality is that puzzle is never going to be put together. And then last but not least, we want to enable trust. If I say I'm a better salesperson than you and say, no, you're not. Well, here's my numbers. I'm, I've got the numbers, right? That's all important stuff. Um, I think it's, it's, it's critical that, that, um, that we measure, but I, I also think that we have to, it should not come at the expense of what Dan Pfaff would call first principles, mm -hmm. right? Content knowledge. I think at times, uh, we're in the, I think the pendulum has swung in our industry. This is my complete bias, of course. Everybody's talking about shiny gadgets and statistics, yet the, what is your, what is your understanding of the actual game? Like if I were to ask you in hockey, what's a two one two? what's a neutral zone trap? How are you going to communicate that to a player? Right? Yeah. If I were to say, what's, what are the, what's the biomechanics of a skating stride? Right? Yeah. If I were to say to you, like, what is, um, 
What's a time course for adaptation of the aerobic system? Okay, so these are things that are what I call first principles. You have to have those. At the end of the day, I think I said this, but the you're never going to be 100% objective. Yeah. Uh, the data or the metric is the patty in a hamburger. Mm. On either side of the patty is a piece of bread, right? That right. bread on top of the patty is who's, what, who deems what's important to measure? That's subjective. Who analyzes that metric? That's subjective. Who communicates that metric? That's subjective. And what I mean by, uh, I'm going off here, but no, I love it. what I mean by unintended consequences, let me give you an example of what I mean. Let's just take a chaotic system like education or uh, the the stock market. Yeah. Same same as same as same as physiology, right? Way back in the day, two thousand one, I think Bush started this "No Child Left Behind." Mm -hmm. Right. This was a, a really really push to educate young children, and the big push was standardized tests. Two thousand thirteen, Obama did the same thing. His program was named something different. It was a big push to improve the educational system through standardized tests. The government funded that. And if those test scores didn't meet the requirements, you weren't getting funding for schools. There was a huge lawsuit in Atlanta where actual teachers were gaming the system. They were erasing scores. They were putting scores in. They were trying to game the system, right? Wow. That's, that's what happens when a target or a metric becomes a target. Now, the unintended consequence of that is you got young kids, in my opinion, that learn by rote memorization. Right. When you come into an internship program and someone says, hey, I can tell you everything from Vladimir Assurance's Prolepin's charts, but when I ask you one question about some context and tell me what that means to you, you might get the deer with the headlights look. Yeah. Right? So I think it's important to measure things. Um, I think... Um, it doesn't need to be overcomplicated. I think what do you have to look at is what's, what are the highest, what's the, the best relationship that we have, the physical competencies that we have relative to the sport that you're playing. For hockey, you know, there's not many, right? Like the best correlation to skating speed, notice I didn't say game playing IQ, notice I didn't say compete level, notice it, none of that. You can't measure that, right? right? But the best relationships there are pretty much vertical jump and the ability to sprint and run fast. That doesn't need to be overcomplicated to me, right? Yeah. You can get that with a timing laser. If you have force plates, great. If you don't, use a vertex or use a just jump mat. Track it over time. But understand this. This is far from the scoreboard. Yeah. There can be, I mean, we're, this, don't confuse low-hanging fruit with a bountiful harvest. And yeah. those things are very, very tough to measure. Uh, again, uh, I, I don't want to go on and on uh, ad infinitum, but 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 the message here is that uh, uh, measure, mm -hmm. find reliable ways and valid tools to do so. Don't overcomplicate it by choosing a thousand metrics, and ch always try to remember this: input, output, outcome. How in team sports will it affect the outcome? I love how that. hard to answer, very hard to answer, Mike. Okay. So, so I think I already know your answer to this, but it kind of fits right in here. Yep. How much how much data is enough? Huh. Um, I, I try to look at, well, that's a great question. I don't think there's a right answer. It depends, it's all pending. But so <clears throat> here's what I try to look at. I try to look at buckets and then I try to have two to three anchor points for those buckets. 
So movement, right? That output variable we talked about. What are yep. my two or three buckets? Well, FMS, Y balance, uh, PRI table test, right? Mm -hmm. Output variables like performance. What are my three to f uh, two to three anchors or four anchors, right? Isometric mid thigh pull, ten meter sprint, bench press, watts per pound. Okay, those are my anchors. Um, I think if you have the budget. I, I've been uh, uh, blessed in, in this past year to be, have the opportunity to have uh, a half a dozen or a dozen units of, of GPS to work with our hockey players. I think that's really important because I think that's probably one of the closest things that we can look at from the scoreboard and working backwards. Yes. Right? To look at workloads, external workloads, um, player load and skating load. Um, so to answer your question, I think you choose from a movement bucket, you choose from a performance bucket, and you do what you can by choosing three to five anchors that you don't overcomplicate the process. Look at those anchors, master those anchors, do your best um, to use anchors that are reliable. Okay, so another, another thing that I think is important when choosing metrics, and I pulled this up uh, just because I want to have it in reference. I told you at the onset of our, present, our, our interview that one of the metrics that I'm going to look at and change is, is, is a, a force plate a jump metric. We used to use modified reactive strength index. And I talked to Matt Jordan, had the chance to interview him. And one of the articles he recommended, strongly read, strongly recommend to your listeners. This is a, an article by Bishop Patel and Matt Jordan was an author. A framework to guide practitioners for selecting metrics mm. during the counter movement and drop jump tests. Yep. I read that article. Talk. It's good. Did you read it? Yeah. It's a great article. It talked about reliability, coefficient of variation, ICCs, and he talked about ratios and, and this specific MRSI, there, there, there's, there's drawbacks to ratios. So uh, we will change one of our, our, our anchors based on, on this research. That's how you get better, right? You, right. you make mistakes and, and you correct. But for me, if I, if I have any more than three to five anchor points in each one of those, I, I'm way too confused. Um, yeah. It's just too much for, for me. Uh, everybody's different. Uh, I think choose a bucket, three to five anchor points in each. I love it. Okay. So you talked earlier about longitudinal data. Yep. So circling back to that, start by just kind of explaining what does longitudinal data mean? Again, if somebody's not deep in the yeah. sports science game and, and why is it more important to you now? Yeah, I, I think it's collecting data over prolonged periods of time, specifically, hopefully with the same athletes in the same sample, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't happen in pro sports so much, right? No. Because people get traded, you get, um, and, and what it allows you to do if you build a repertoire and reservoir of, of that is it, it allows you to better answer, you know, what's good or what can be expected, right? Uh, for example, I don't have much longitudinal data on Catapult. We just started using it. Right. If someone were to come up and ask me, hey, what's a good player load for a U18 practice during the course of the season? I can't give you a great answer. I've got, uh, we've got 10 players that have had about 40 games uh, and 30 practices, right? So the more you can build up that, that information, uh, the, better, the better you're able to answer those questions. Also, I think it's important, like, we've got to separate what we do as strength and conditioning coaches with, with, with researchers in the, in, the, in the practical setting and lab coats, right? We, what, we, what, what happens in research is we're trying to take a sample size, and we're trying to, to draw an inference using inferential statistics and then communicate that to a larger population, right? We take the sample. Hopefully, it's, 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 it's a sample that's, that's, that's uh, 
that's very similar to what you know to, to the general audience and we're trying sure. to infer upon a population guess what that doesn't happen in sports science our sample is our sample it's our population right. it's our team <laughs> it's our athletes so one would argue the most important from an evidentiary standpoint the most important information that you can track is longitudinal data with your sample then and only then do you look at the research and you look at um uh, depending on what kind of research it is experimental observational and then you start looking at heuristics or other coaches experts opinion another uh, uh slide that i stole from matt jordan in one of his uh, courses on on force plate testing and i think he stole it from another individual in university of calgary he called it the evidential substantiation list and and uh Essentially, the top of the pecking order for sports scientists is, is your longitudinal data set with your unique population. Mm, I love it. Okay. So I'm really interested in this one because everybody listening to this, we're trainers, coaches, rehab professionals. Yep. We're constantly faced with and trying to solve problems. That is what we do every day. Every client or athlete has a unique problem, unique situation. And I know you wrote a blog about this. I already mentioned it a couple of times. Love what you're doing with the blog, but... Walk us through your four steps of problem solving and kind of your process for going through that. Yeah, so I think I think the one you're referring to is the one I stole from Karl Popper, the one on, that I read on wrote on the napkin. Yeah, I, I th to me I, to me I think this is science. Like I, the beauty about this is you can literally write it on a napkin, right? Yeah, um, it, it's from a book from Karl Popper called Scheme of Conjectures and Refutations. And by the way, I say this on pretty much every podcast. Someone asked me like. Who are the individuals that have made profound impacts on your thinking? Probably sits at the top of the list. People would say sometimes it's too deep. Maybe it's boring. No way. Uh, another person, and I'm off on a tangent, and I promise I'll answer this question. That's okay. But another person uh, that I that I, I hold in so high regard is is uh, Impelizari um, uh, Franco, and he yeah. talked about this idea, uh, you know, understanding critical thinking skills and the ability um, of understanding science starts and ends with problems he teaches his courses like his first coursework at, at the master's level is the philosophy of science like that's how you critically evaluate information and think and the the, the crazy thing that I, I that i i'm passionate about I, I can only go from my own bias but i don't know if that's taught in north america like uh, i didn't ever I, I didn't i didn't ever get that in my undergrad class like how do you recognize and a lot like a, a fallacy or a, a, how do you critically evaluate information so Carl uh, Popper sits at the top of the list for me and the scheme of conjectures and refutations is simple science starts and ends with problems so, so number one what's the problem you're trying to solve right um, what is your temporary theory uh, remember the theories you know they're to be shared they're to be poked holes in the, the person that you should be poking them is, is yourself right yeah trying to by trying to refute what they are, sharing them and getting good critique from good people that you really admire and trust. If it's, if it's, you know, critique is, it can be really, really good. It can be used as fertilizer, but if it's just ill-founded and, and, and shallow and ad hominem and name calling, that's not the critique I'm referring to. No. Um, and then you've got an error eliminator. So how do you eliminate those errors? And then a new problem emerges. Uh, another one that I, I really liked, and I, I interviewed Patrick Ward recently, and this is an article called Statistical Thinking and Empirical Inquiry by Wild to Tell. And in it, he called this the, the um, um, his, his, uh, his, his uh, analysis uh, was a, a, a PPDAC. So the PPDAC, problem, 
So plan, data, analysis, and conclusion. So it's very similar, right? Okay. Think yeah. of that from a standpoint of, of, of just a program. Like, what's your problem? I got I to design a program for an athlete. What's my temper th- temporary theory? Well, it's, uh, here's my program. What are my error eliminators? Well, what are my anchor points? Are they gotten better or have they gotten worse? Yeah. Okay. No, they haven't. Well, a new problem arises. I got or they have, but something else comes up, right? Yes. So you can use that little model, um, regardless of what kind of measures that you're using. Um, and I, the last thing I would say for me, based on my experience, is when problems do come up, they're not overhauls. They're small little changes that you do one at a time. Because if you do too many at once, you have no clue what moved the needle. Right. Yes. If you change two things, so it's just a small little tinker. I remember seeing a, a video, uh, a presentation from a esteemed colleague of mine talking about how they, they test their athletes and how they, you know, sprint analysis, et cetera, et cetera. And then their interventions were, were so small, these small little tinkerings. Right. Then yes. you see if it changes. So I like that model. To me, you can read it on a napkin and I think it's brilliant. So, um, that's Carl Popper in a nutshell. He's my, one of my favorite. Yeah. You know, it's so great that you make that point too, because a lot of times I feel like young coaches especially, just because they don't have kind of the understanding or they just don't have the reps yet, but man, yep. they something goes wrong and they want to blow up the entire program, right? Yep. It's like, I had this thing over here on one end of the spectrum and it didn't work, so now I'm going to swing it all the way to the other side. Versus like, no, I feel like I'm on the right path here. Maybe if I just make these one or two little tweaks, I always think of it as tightening the screws. Yep. I'm just going to tighten these two screws and see what happens. And I think part of that is patience, uh, reps, experience. But I'm so glad you said that because I think too often we're really quick to just, you know, totally go in the opposite direction. And then we never know if that first intervention would have worked had we stuck with it or maybe just tweaked it a little bit. Big time. Agreed. So I'm really interested in this because, (laughs) oh my gosh, I can't even believe I'm saying this on air, but (laughs) I have had this weird thought over the last year or so, and I promise it's not because my dad is a PhD and now my sister's a doctor, but I have had this weird thought of maybe at some point going back and doing a PhD. And I I can't even explain why. I don't don't know why I'm even saying this, but for those of us that are 30, 40, maybe even 50 years old. What advice do you have for going back and getting that master's or getting that PhD later in life? Yeah, I just read a, a Chinese proverb today that sums it up so beautifully, and I'm, I'm, I, I hope I can remember it. The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is today. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it just depends. I, I have, I've, you know, my narrative based on what you said is probably that we're very similar. You're a lifelong learner. You're passionate about learning. You're passionate about your craft. Yep. When, when one day you're, we're gone, you want to prove to yourself that you did it for, for no other reason. Um, at least that was my intent. Uh, there's a massive time commitment. I remember this. Oh, man. I, I remember this. Um, this is, again, from my experience. I remember this, oh, gosh, five, six years, uh, probably right before getting my Ph.D., you guys remember Ben Peterson, really oh, yeah. smart guy, worked yeah. in Pat Catapult, Catapult for a while, was in the National Hockey League, works for the, the, uh, the um, uh, 49ers. 
And I told him, I was like, man, I'm, I'm thinking about getting my PhD. He just started laughing. He's like, oh, gosh, good luck. And I remember like, good luck. Like, what are you talking about? Good luck. Right. He's like, oh, Anthony goes, get it. You're, you're going to get ready for a journey, you know? Yeah. And it was a massive journey for me. Number one, it was the middle of COVID. Uh, Canada essentially shut down for, you know, almost, you know, two years during this. Right. But it's, um, it's a humbling experience. Like, when I talk about humility, you just realize, wow, like, I, I use this quote an awful lot, but it's so true. As your island of knowledge grows, so does a shoreline of your ignorance. Mm. You know, when, when when you feel like when we were younger in our, in our I, I, I could, well, I can speak from my experience. I could tell you all the answers. I got, oh, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I can tell you, I got way more questions than I have answers. Most of my answers are perhaps, maybe, I don't know. Um, not like, oh, it's this, it's that. Um, so the, the, the doing it, um, was one of the most rewarding things to be able to say I did it, learned a ton, massive time commitment. Um, and, uh, oh, this, the frustrating part, at least when you're in a, a thesis based is n- you don't decide when it's over, right? Yeah. You, yeah. Whether it's the publishing, uh, and you're getting information back from, from, um, from, uh, referees or whether it's your PhD, uh, supervisor, it's a, a long, long ordeal, but it was very rewarding. And at the end of the day, if you're thinking about doing it and you can put in that time and, 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 and you have, uh, uh, and you have passion for it, I think it's a really rewarding experience regardless of age, even if you're a 40 year old starting out like I did. Yeah. I love it, man. Yeah. It's been, uh, it's been a while. I remember the thesis defense and the clammy hands and yes, luckily, uh, Dr. K and Dr. Newton felt I was good enough on that day to move on, but man, it's, it's a lot, man. It's a lot. The other, the other thing too, I'll say it's funny. I, I heard this a while ago and uh, you know, you, you start like when you're in your PhD, you, you get the horse blinders on, right? You get, you start digging holes deep, deep. And the, the danger really is kind of losing track of the landscape. I always call mm-hmm. it dragonfly vision, you know, being a serial generalist. And I heard a joke a while back and it's the truth. I feel like when I was in my PhD, you learn more and more about less and less until you know absolutely everything about nothing. oh man i really like that so so eat your heart out uh but i think i would strongly endorse you going back to doing it i think you'd be unbelievable i think it would be really rewarding if you find the time to do it right yeah be cool i love it okay uh you've already done the big question and yep i just i love your thought process like you said we're very similar in the sense lifelong learner learners always asking questions so my question for you is this and it's kind of two or three in here, yep. but yep. what are your long-term goals now in this game? What do you want to achieve? Where do you see yourself going forward? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there's a lot of passions I have that I don't know if I've, I've overturned those stones. I, I think, and maybe you can, maybe you can uh, relate to me here. Like when you put your name on a building, it's hard, it's hard to walk away from something even if you get pretty cool opportunities or unique opportunities it's just it's your name you know yes. uh, uh there's a part of me that really wants to work uh, possibly in high level hockey um I, I love i have great colleagues in the sport first of all i realize that there's only 32 of those jobs so i'm not sure. suggesting that, that 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 the doors are you know becoming that's not what i'm suggesting but it's a passion of mine it's something i've always thought about yep. in the short term i, I really like to um continue to educate our staff and, and be more of a manager than I still coach. I'm still on the floor, but I'd like to parlay that into more education and educating young staff. Um, and then having passions away that are 
potentially revenue generators. You know, like this is our, I said this as well. I don't know how you feel about this, but we have a supply and demand problem in strength and conditioning right now. Yes. Right. We've got a lot. This is not an easy field. I, I, um, I looked at these numbers before a previous podcast. Think of these numbers right now for a young coach. Okay, in in the, in in the in North America right now, one hundred and fifty seven thousand five hundred undergrads in kinesiology. Okay, wow. let's hypothetically say that's not including masters and PhDs. Yeah, not including them. Let's just say you want to work in the National Hockey League. Thirty two jobs. Let's assume that every coach or every team has an assistant strength coach, which is not the case. That's sixty four jobs. That's a 0.03% chance, right? Wow. So that's that's a supply and demand issue altogether, not including PhDs and not including master's degrees. The other problem that I think we have, which is 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 is, is kind of scary, is that when you increase the nu- the number of winners, you decrease the value of winning. Now, what happens is, look at guys like me. I went back to get my PhD, masters. P- What's happening now is, okay, we're still going to pay you forty thousand, but now we want a PhD for it. You right. see the, you, you, yeah. you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so so for me in the private sector, I'd like to put out and scale good information. Like uh, I put together a, recently the, the High Performance Hockey Masterclass was an eight-part lecture series that, that I, I think is really good information. I'd like to scale good messages. Um, so I think having passions away and educating away is a way to generate another revenue stream for private coaches. Sure. Because you have to be able to parlay that with what happens on the floor as well. Yep. And then having other interests away from strength and conditioning, I think, are really important. Whether that's investing, whether that's real estate, um, and then personal, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, passions, uh, hobbies. Yeah. Um, so th- those are things. Uh, teaching, whether it's a, a part-time teaching, maybe at the university level, or, or managing on the floor, teaching young coaches, and then, um, you know finding other avenues and revenue streams by creating content. I think that's one of the things that you're doing a really awesome job of. I think you've, you've said that in your, in your podcast before. I think for me, uh, there's a difference between consuming and creating. Yes. And you've really, you've really created some great things. Um, and um, I, I think that that can lead to, to, to other revenue streams as well. So I think it's a, a bunch of things. Yeah. Hopefully. No, I, that's fantastic, man. <laughs> and I wouldn't expect anything less. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't you. Oh, I'm, I'm going to do this one thing and then I'm good. Like, yeah, that's, that's how that's how we work. I love it. OK, so last but not least, lightning round Four fairly yep. short questions. Sure. Your answer can be as long or short as you like. So Perfect. number one, from one podcaster to another, what are the biggest lessons you've learned since starting your show? Talk to you about this off air. A couple. Uh, I got a br- brilliant um uh, brilliant advice from a good friend of mine. He said, um, he said, uh, you know, I want to learn something when I interview somebody, I want the audience to learn because I want to scale a good message and I want to laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, man, I, I think I've learned so much just by asking questions selfishly. Um, I've, I've been able to choose who I've been interviewing because I, I not only selfishly want to learn from them, but I want to scale a better message. Um, uh, man, that, I've I've learned so many things, um, but probably the big one is shut your mouth and listen. Great advice. <laughs> Great advice. I try and tell myself that every time we're on the show. Hey, man, they're the star. I'm just interviewing them. So great stuff. Number two, with all the things you have going on, did a PhD, you got pets, you're running a business. 
Man, how do you go about finding balance in your life and finding room for your own hobbies, right? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't, I don't, uh, then, you know, I, I'm more of a morning in our gym right now. We've got some great coaches in the evening, so I'm, I'm not there a, a lot of the times in the evening. So I can, I can create content, um, whether it's a website, blog, et cetera. Um, I, I, I try to find time to educate myself daily. I'm involved. Uh, I have uh, a nephew and two nieces that I, I, man, they're a huge part of my life. I get, I got involved uh, this past year with youth hockey. We, we run our own hockey school. We've had for 24 years, but this past year we started at the grassroots level with the Blue Jackets and eight U and six U development, which they're trying to scale to the entire city. So I was a development coach along with my brother oh, that's there. Awesome. That was a, yeah, it was a really rewarding experience in terms of grassroots efforts in the game. So those are all elements that I really find provide balance. And I like to write too away from it. I think you and I spoke about this, but I don't know why poetry and writing music have always been something I've, I've been drawn to. It gets my mind away from things and it allows me to have some balance away from the confines of the weight room. You yeah. know, there's a monotony. You and I know this, right? There's a monotony to what we do. That's sure. okay. Sure. I mean, there, there, you got to find, you got to find ways. So uh, those are some of the things that uh, I try to get involved with away from, away from our business. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So number three, talk to me about the unknown poet. Uh, yeah, I, I always, um, I don't know what, maybe it ran in our family. I think my, 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 my mother's side and my dad's side both like to write. Um, I picked up a guitar a while ago, probably 15, 20 years ago, and I like to write music. And then it parlayed for me. I remember, um, I remember reading a book called The War of Art. It was an unbelievable book by Stephen Pressfield. Mm, and on yes. the front page of the book, I have it in highlight and I have it on my, my, my phone. It was such a profound impact on me. So there's a secret that most writers know that wannabe writers don't. And the secret is this. Writing's not the hard part. Sitting down to write is. Mm, yes, yes, so yes, yes. For me, I have to make that. If I don't make myself write, I won't. Like, you know, the, the old adage, well, it came to me in the shower. Yeah, yeah, that, that's not like it used to be for me. Not, right. not when, you, when you get older and you have other responsibilities. So I try to do it on Sundays. I try to sit down a, an hour in the morning to write poetry. Um, my songwriting's not where it once was, but I find it, it certainly helps balance me. And it, it's a, a form of medication. Yeah. Okay, so this is off the script, but you yep. have to play one song on your guitar in front of a crowd. What is it? <laughs> Don't take my guitar. That's oh. what I would be called. Yeah. <laughs> that it's over. There's nothing left to say. The movers will be here a week from today. You can take the TV and that FM radio. You can take the kitchen set my mama got us not long ago. You can pack the, the uh, uh, you can you can pack the the love seat in that old VCR. But please don't take my guitar. Oh you my go, gosh, baby. I love it, dude. That's, well that's done. That's a runaway single. That's uh, a runaway single. I love it, man. I love it. Beautiful. Okay. Last but not least, man, what's next for Anthony Donskov? I don't know. It's a great question. I, I, I ask that of podcasters as well. Um, I'm just going to take each day at a time, God willing, and, 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 um, and enjoy the moment where I'm at and not think too far ahead. I'm going to challenge myself every day by learning, uh, by being humble, uh, by continuing to, 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 to hopefully uh, change lives at, at our business. And then, you know, always interested in, in connecting with great people and, and, uh, pursuing collaborative work. Let me put it that way. Yeah. Um, we'll see where it ends in, in terms and measures of, of what's next for me, but just taking it day by day. I love it, my guy. Well, Anthony, so great catching up with you today. I always love chatting. Where can my listeners find out more about you and all the great work you're doing? 
Sure. Uh, thanks for thanks for that. Yeah, uh, I, recent uh, new uh, website I have just anthonydonscoff.com. Uh, started a blog there as well, about four or five blog posts in. Um, Twitter, uh, Anthony Donscoff, Instagram, Anthony Donscoff, and our gym, Donscoff SC. Those are all areas that uh, certainly you can reach out. I love it. Well, Anthony, again, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, my friend. All right, my friend, that does it for this week's episode with Anthony Donscoff. Really hope you enjoyed it. Man, the guy is just so sharp. I love how pragmatic he is. I love the fact that he's not just going to dive into something willy-nilly without thinking about it and without really considering how it's going to move the needle in his facility. So, man, hope you enjoyed the episode as well. If you did, I've got one small favor to ask. If you're not already subscribed to the show, what are you doing, man? It takes two seconds, and you will know each and every week when a new episode drops. So wherever you consume podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, the Amazon Store, go there right now, click the subscribe button so you know each and every week when a new episode drops. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you, and we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.